Well, good morning again. Nice to see you all. Welcome back to those who've been away. And uh, we are um, embarking on a new study this morning. We're going to begin our study of 2 Corinthians. Uh, we spent the last three years going through 1 Corinthians, so I think we're ready. Um, and I'm hoping to get through two verses this morning uh, to really get a jump on the book. But there is a lot of background. Um, I may get a little bit further. So I'm going to read uh, from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And uh, the title of our lesson today is The God of All Comfort. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 says this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ abound to us, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. But whether we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or whether we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is working in your perseverance in the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. Let's pray. Again, Lord, we come as we take this time to look to your word. We ask that you would teach us, encourage us, help us to understand it better, that we might be able to apply truths from your word to our lives. We give you the praise and glory for all that's accomplished, and we thank you for the privilege of being able to be here in fellowship together and for the grace that you give. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 2 Corinthians is really, uh, I think, one of the richest uh, books in the New Testament. It's different than many others. 1 Corinthians, you know, as we've gone through it, is highly instructive. It's trying to correct a lot of issues. 2 Corinthians is very personable. It's, it's, it's probably the one that reveals the most to us about the Apostle Paul it's been described as sort of a cross-section of a Christian's life. If you were to cut open Paul and see what really makes his heart beat, you would find that in Second Corinthians. And um, part of the reason, I think, why um, this book is not taught as much as uh, you might hope is because uh, to understand it, you really have to have a good understanding of a lot of the background behind the book. There's there's a lot he refers to that you have to piece together, and you can only do that once you've studied the entire book. And so you kind of have to study the entire book and then go back and re- re-go through it. So I'm, I'm going to try and front end some of that background as we go through, and I'll be continuing to not only remind that, but adding more details as we go through. But it's really one of these books where you're like, okay, that makes sense now. Uh, we don't know exactly what was going on, but it seems like this was going on. 
uh, in some places. In other places, it's very clear exactly what was going on. Last week, we, we kind of began this study by doing a complete overview of Paul's four missionary journeys because, again, I wanted to set the whole context for who Paul was and where Corinth was and how many times he was there. And, 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 um, and we're going to review a little bit of that this morning, but kind of focus in. We did a kind of a broad overview of four missionary journeys. We're going to focus really in on his relationship with the Corinthians uh, by int- way of introduction this morning. During those four journeys, Paul actually made three visits to the city of Corinth. He first visited them on his second missionary journey, and that's recorded in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 18. That would have been around A.D. 51. So Paul in his late 40s, uh, maybe early 50s, but probably late 40s, uh, traveled from Antioch uh, through Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey, um, up to Macedonia, which is northern Greece, and then down to Achaia. You, you, you recognize Achaia. It was read in the passage that I just read. Achaia, remember Greece is kind of like two Greece splotches separated by a, like a three-mile strip of land, a very narrow uh, um, isthmus. And uh, so that strip of land, that right there is where Corinth is, right where those two uh, pieces of where that small isthmus, that small strip of land is that separates the two. And actually... In the 1800s, they finished a canal that goes all the way through that. So Greece, actually, the lower part is is technically an island. Um, And uh, Corinth was so popular at that time because ships that were sailing from one side of of Greece to the other, it was very dangerous and rocky uh, down in the Mediterranean and southern Greece. And so they would pull into the port at Corinth, and the city was full of slaves um, because the, it, was, it was more expedient for many of those who were shipping things to the west side or over to Italy or where Rome's at. They would actually drag the goods across uh, that three-mile stretch and put them on other boats. Or if your boat was small enough, they would oftentimes uh, pull the boat uh, and, uh, onto land and drag the boat across the three miles, and it was quicker and safer for them to do that. And so... That's just a little bit of uh, why Corinth was such a key strategic city, in many ways more strategic than Athens at that time, which was also in the same province. The province is Achaia, and that's that southern region. The northern region of Greece is Macedonia. And so when we read those terms, we're thinking about provinces or areas, and cities that were in Macedonia would be like Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica, that's northern Greece. Southern Greece uh, is Athens. Um, Sincrea is, it was, was close to, also there were Christians there. And you notice even in our greeting in uh, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going I'm, I'm to have a tough time saying 2 Corinthians because I'm used to saying 1 Corinthians, but 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. So he's directing this letter to a specific church, but also to other believers who were in that area, including like Sincrea, Athens, people in that, in that province, because this letter was probably going to be passed around, and so he greets them as well. Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth on his second missionary journey. It was a lengthy stay. It was the longest uh, time he had spent in any place besides uh, Tarsus, which where he was from, um, and, uh, and, and also um, Antioch, which is where he was sent out from. 
But um, sometime after his first visit, uh, Paul heard about some problems in Corinth. And um, uh, so he, he wrote them a letter which we don't have today. So before 1 Corinthians, Paul actually wrote a letter to the Corinthians. So really, 1 Corinthians is technically 2 Corinthians. I mean, it's 1 Corinthians because it's the, it, first of all, it's scripture, and it's a book that we have today, but a non-scriptural book, a non-scriptural letter, a non-canonical letter, one that we don't have today. We know it exists because in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, he addresses them, and he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And there was some confusion in the church at Corinth at that time because some of them were saying, well, Paul said, don't associate with sexually immoral people, so we can never associate with unbelievers, and they, they were, had this monastic attitude where the church should be totally isolated from the world. And he said, I wasn't speaking about unbelievers because you have to associate with them. But he was speaking about believers. And he was talking about being in the world but not of the world. And your association with unbelievers is obviously different. But if somebody claims to be a believer and they are living an immoral life, don't associate with them. That's what he's clarifying. And he's saying, I had said that. Yes, I did say that in my previous letter. That's the only reference we really have to a previous letter, but we know that there was at least one previous letter to them. And uh, on his third missionary journey, Paul went out, and remember, he, he visited the churches that he had visited before, um, he, but he, he and uh, if you, if you kind of picture this ancient world, you've got the Mediterranean Sea, remember, and then you've got on the far eastern corner of the sea, and the north corner is where he was sent out from. That's where the church was in Antioch. And uh, Turkey's right next to that. So um, where modern-day Turkey is, that was called Asia. And the southern Turkey was called Asia Minor. And he spent a lot of time in Asia, and then he went over to Macedonia. If you think of the Mediterranean, and I know that the Americans think the world's flat and that it ends after Hawaii and uh, New York, and that after that, there's really nothing. And so uh, geography is hard for us. I know people think that Africa is a country, even though it has 53 countries. I know that uh, I was talking to an Australian yesterday, and he's, you know, we were saying, yeah, you could tell people Australia is the West Island of New Zealand, and Americans would believe it. So, um, but, but when you think about... Um, uh, just, just that Mediterranean world. I mean, people, you can picture Italy, right? It's a boot coming down. And then there's the Adriatic Sea in between uh, um, uh, Italy and Greece, okay? And then uh, Greece is separated from Turkey by the Aegean Sea. Those are northern kind of inlets they look like on the Mediterranean Sea, which is the much bigger. So just remember, Italy, Greece, Turkey. Much of Paul's ministry was in Turkey. And his third missionary journey, he spent three years in Ephesus, three years in that city where the Ephesians were, and day and night preaching, um, sharing the gospel, teaching uh, in a school there. And um, he ended up uh, evangelizing even outside of there. But that, that section of Turkey by the, at that time was known as Asia Minor. It was 240 miles across the Aegean Sea to get to Corinth uh, by boat, and that would have taken two or three weeks. You could do it by boat, two or three weeks, or you could travel all the way up through Turkey, uh, where you know um, Istanbul is right now in the northern area, and then you come back around 
northern Greece, which was called Macedonia. That's where Philippi was. And then you come down through Thessalonica and Berea, and you would get to Corinth. That was a 900-mile walk. So you could take a boat for two or three weeks, or you could walk 900 miles. And Paul typically walked the 900 miles um, as just, just to get an idea of, of what this was like for him. Sometime during his um, third missionary journey, while Paul was in Ephesus, this is now about five years after his first visit to Corinth, we're looking at about A.D. 56, Paul made a brief visit to Corinth. That visit is sometimes called the sorrowful visit or the painful visit. Um, we, we know that Paul had made plans to visit them, and we know that he wanted to visit them for a few months uh, spend a lengthy time with them, like the whole winter. Because in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 19, he says, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And also in 1 Corinthians 16, 5, he says, but I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia, and 1 Corinthians 16, 6, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter. So he planned to visit them, and remember, just trying to keep the chronology, this is really helpful for us as we, as we get into this. But Paul, on his second missionary journey, first visited Corinth. He wrote them at least one letter um, before 1 Corinthians. He wrote them 1 Corinthians to help straighten out a whole lot of problems they had. And then uh, he decided he was going to visit them. He ended up visiting them while he, from Ephesus. So this is now five years later. And it turned out to be something happened that was really hurtful for Paul. This was like, it made him very sorrowful. And we keep on reading about something that happened. Most likely, just a little bit of a preview here, it seems that there were some false teachers there who were discrediting Paul as an apostle. And they were saying things like, oh, Paul, you know, he's not even really an apostle. We actually are Jews sent from the church in Jerusalem by the 12 apostles, but you can count them. Paul's not one of the 12. He's not a real apostle. And so uh, they would first discredit his credentials, and then they would try to change his teaching. Most likely, some of them were Judaizers who were teaching that you needed to become a Jew first before you became a Christian. And so that was a heresy. It's work salvation. It's different than what the Bible teaches. And that uh, was an offense to not only Paul, but the gospel. And so it's a dangerous teaching. But, this, but, but not only that, it seems like when Paul went there, that somebody in the church who was opposed to Paul stood up in a public assembly and just berated him to his face and slandered him and just spoke badly about him. And it seems as though nobody came to Paul's defense. And it seemed like many in the church were feeling that way about him. They were convinced by these false teachers. And so that's why Paul left, and he left in, in a lot of sorrow. And um, there's evidence in chapters 10 and 11 that there were several false teachers um, and that's probably why Paul went over there to try and help deal with that. Take a look with me at 2 Corinthians 2. We're going to just peek ahead to chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. He says, But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you again in sorrow. This is after his sorrowful visit. And he says, No, I'm not going to go back there. Um, 
and, and have another sorrowful visit. He says, verse two, for if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? And this is the very thing I wrote you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you may know the love which I have abundantly for you. Now, um, when we get into 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we'll be able to put together a lot of these pieces about what, what must have happened to make him sorrowful. But for now, regardless of, of and, and there are a few different theories, I really think the most reasonable one is that he was verbally attacked. And, um, but we're, but we're going we're, we're gonna to look more into that. Um, but you may have noticed in the passage I just read from 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that he also says, when I wrote to you. And what we find is that there's another letter that he wrote to them that we don't have, and it's also not Scripture. But it, it's, re, it's sometimes referred to as the severe letter or the sorrowful letter. And that letter was uh, sent to them uh, in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. So really, if, Second Corinthians, if 1 Corinthians is really 2 Corinthians and there was a letter after that, and th- then we're talking about 2 Corinthians, really 4 Corinthians. I don't want to confuse you, but I'm sure I am. So um, all that to say is that there was much correspondence between Paul and the church in Corinth, and something had happened um, that made him very sorrowful. Um, but he planned to go, and he did indeed go. We know that Paul made a third visit to Corinth after he wrote 2 Corinthians. We know that he planned to because in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 14, he says, here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you and I will not be a burden to to you for I do not seek what is yours. And he goes on. That's 2 Corinthians 12, verse four. If you look at 2 Corinthians 13, verse one, he says that he describes that third visit. He says, and he says, this is the third time I am coming to you. So he's planning to come. And then in Acts chapter 20, you don't need to turn there, but you can just write this down if you want. Acts chapter 20, um, he just, we have a description from Luke about that third visit to Corinth. So we know that it happens. Um, remember, there had been a riot in Ephesus. There was a silversmith named Demetrius who was upset because apparently the church in Ephesus was growing so rapidly and so many people were coming to faith in Christ that in Ephesus, the idol business was suffering. And so people weren't buying idols like they used to. And so those in the craft market who made idols and silversmiths and so forth, they started a riot and, and they wanted to kill Paul and Paul ended up escaping. And, um, and in Acts chapter 20, verse, verses one through three, Luke wrote, now after the uproar had ceased, Paul having summoned and exhorted the disciples said farewell and left to go to Macedonia. And when he had gone through these districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months. And when a plot was formed against him by the Jews and he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And so Paul came to Greece um, and, and that was when he made that third visit to the Corinthians. But for our purpose, 
I think it's, it's important enough and, and, and it's, it's good enough to keep in mind that Paul had lived in Corinth for a year and a half, 18 months. He was very close with the church there. They had written him at one stage with a slew of issues, which he wrote back to them in 1 Corinthians. After that letter, he visited them a second time. Something very painful happened. He returned to Ephesus and wrote them a letter shortly after that, the sorrowful letter. He sent that with Titus. Couldn't really wait for Titus to get back. He's so wrapped up. For whatever reason, he leaves Ephesus and walks up towards Macedonia to try and get over to them and ends up meeting Titus along the way. And Titus gives them uh, the good news that they've responded to his sorrowful letter and that the now the majority are really for Paul and they see that the false teachers are who they are. And, and this overjoys him. He can't wait to be with them, but rather than rush down there because there's still a minority that are against him and he doesn't want to go back and get attacked again or cause disruption or confusion. So he decides to write another letter to the Corinthians and that's where we have Second Corinthians. That's the context. That's what's going on here. And he wrote Second Corinthians really to reaffirm his love for them to talk about forgiveness, to, t- to make clear about his apostolic authority, to refute false teachers, and to try and bring unity to the church before he comes again so that he can avoid another painful visit. So if you're a friend of Paul and you know kind of what's gone on in his life and you know he's writing a letter to the Corinthians and he's going to go visit them, you're asking all kinds of questions. You're saying, well, what really was going on with those who were hurtful to him? And are they ready to reconcile with him? And, and what's reconciliation look like? And how's that going to happen? And um, what about those in Corinth who still don't respect Paul? And as we consider the context and we come today, almost 2,000 years later, and we're looking at this book of 2 Corinthians, it is so helpful for us because we have relationships that are hurtful to us. We find ourselves in situations where people treat us unjustly. And if you're a Christian, it's great to have a book like this where you see somebody who is so sold out to Jesus Christ that he doesn't matter at all and he wants to do things as God wants him to do it. And God inspires him through his Holy Spirit to write a book in his own words, but actually from God that is an example of how to deal with those types of situations, how to handle verbal attacks from people who would love to see you discredited, what real reconciliation looks like, what should be different about our lives than unbelievers. How should we interact with unbelievers? How can we tell the difference between an unbeliever and a believer? Why does God allow suffering in the lives of his own children? How exactly does suffering help us? And how does the sanctification process work? How how can we become more and more like Jesus Christ? All those issues are dealt with. So it's a very personal letter and more, and more. It's like I'm selling it, and more. Not only this, but... All of these issues are covered in just these 13 chapters of a treasure of a book. And as we begin by looking at really the the opening of this book, what we find is there's a greeting and there's a benediction. The greeting is in uh, verses 1 and 2, and the benediction is in verses 3 through 7. Now, normally you think of benediction, you think, oh, great, we're done. It's going to give the benediction, it's over. Benediction just actually means blessing. Um, And so uh, there's a blessing to God, 
and um, a eulogy, if you will, um, which sometimes is it's just, it's basically, it's, it's a word here where we get the word eulogy from, and it means to speak well of. And so he's, he's honoring God. It's not an imperative. He's not saying, you bless God, but he's saying, blessed be to God. I think that's indicative here. It's actually this, this idea is indicating. He's saying, hey, God should be blessed. He should be praised. His name should be exalted. Uh, he is uh, blessed because of these things. Um, and so uh, I really want to spend some time looking at, at some observations on, on the greeting, verses 1 and 2. Um, and then if we have time, and I think we will, um, we'll, we'll start by a- a- asking some other questions about suffering. So um, Let's take a look at verses 1 and 2. And what I want to do is, you know, I've already read them, but I really kind of want to pick them apart and look beyond what you might do just in a cursory reading where you're starting a book and you, you actually think, well, let me skip over the first two, uh, let, uh, you know, verses. Let me get to the meat. But, you know, there's, there's really some, some noteworthy observations in these first two that will help tee us up and get us ready to understand the God of all compassion. And so... Um, we're going to look at three observations this morning that really should help you to see Paul's view of comfort during time of suffering in verses 1 and 2 in this greeting. Three observations. The first one is that his greeting followed a certain pattern. His greeting followed a common pattern, if you will. Um, In every culture, at different times, letters follow a different format. Now, you could stray from that but typically you'll have the same format that's common. Uh, it used to be back in America when, when, uh, or you know, in the West here when we would send a letter and we would write a letter and on paper and send it through the post or through a messenger or whatever that it would follow. You would first greet the person, you would have the body uh, of the message, and then you would put your name at the end and you would sign it. The sender would be at the very bottom. And so that would be the typical format. I mean, you've, you've, you're familiar with this, right? Dear John, I'm breaking up with you. Love, Mary. Right? So it's just a greeting, addressing the person it's to, the content, and then the sender. All right? Things have changed a little bit now that email becomes more, like really a more, uh, more common way for us to send letters because all, the, the, the order changes a little bit. Now you have, um, oh, and now you have like the sender who... Uh, and then you have who it's to, and then you have like a subject title, what it's about. And then you have another address, and then you have the body, and then you have another like from. So it's, it's basically you get an email, and it says from Mary at gmail.com to John at gmail.com. Subject, it's over. <laughs> Dear John... I'm breaking up with you, love, Mary. And that's the email. And so you have all the parts, and, and our letters are, are very much like that. And some of you know exactly what those letters look like. They're like, that's almost the mail you get, just like that. But in the first century, we had certain ingredients that you would find in most letters. It would begin with the sender, just like email. You see who it's from first. And then it says, to the recipient, and there'd be some sort of prayer of thanksgiving to God or, depending if they were pagan, probably to gods. 
And we found this in ancient literature. In fact, there's one Greek letter that has been found that has all three ingredients. It's a common letter, and I'll just read it, read, read to you the very beginning of the letter. It says, Ptolemaeus to Cassianos, his brother, very many greetings. Before everything, I pray you are in good health. So we have the one who's sending it, the person it's to, and a blessing or a prayer or something like that. So that, that was very common. And so we see that Paul follows that in verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, those are the ones it's from, to the church of God, which is in Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, Achaia that's the recipients, that's who it's to, and then we have this prayer or this, this blessing that says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So my first observation is simply that Paul followed a common pattern. But my next two observations uh, points out that there was something very different about this letter that would have been different in the, from most letters sent at that time. And the, so the second observation is that his greeting really affirmed his apostleship. And I want you to I want to point that out because he he starts out with Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will by the will of God. So, and then not only does it really highlight the fact that Paul was an apostle, I mean, from the very get-go, a guy who was being attacked by false teachers about his authority, about speaking, not only to say, I'm an apostle, but I'm an apostle by the will of God. In Acts 26, Paul t- talks about he he recounts his story of conversion, Paul was an unwilling participant in the gospel ministry. He didn't, have, he didn't set out to be a, a missionary. That wasn't his dream. Not like all of us who want to live in like a really remote place and, you know, get all kinds of diseases and all that. Paul, he, he wanted to be, you know, a, a Jewish theologian. And uh, he thought he was pleasing God by killing Christians. And that's why he was traveling around. And on the road to Damascus, the Lord appeared to him and said, Paul, Paul, I have chosen you, and I am sending you. Acts 26 uses that word sending. The word for send in in the New Testament in Greek is apostello, which means uh, to send, and an apostle is a sent one. And in the New Testament, we have the word apostle used two different ways, one with a capital A and one with a small a, although just because it's not capitalized or we just, this is the way we describe it. But um, the 12 apostles were called that because they were a group of like really, they were sent by Christ. They were the 12 sent ones. But the term itself also could be used to describe uh, people who are uh, sent uh, along with them, like Barnabas, for example, who wasn't one of the 12, but he was sent out from the church in Antioch. Incidentally, the term missionary today is from the Latin word mito, which means sent one. It is the equivalent of the Greek word apostello. And so in a general sense, uh, everyone has a mission. We've all been sent by God. We have a responsibility. But a missionary in a specific sense is really a title given to somebody who's sent from a local church. And so if somebody says, well, I'm a missionary... Um, the question that you should ask them is, well, who sent you? Because a missionary is a sent one, and to say, I have been sent by someone to do something. And then um, what you'll find is sometimes people who call themselves missionaries don't have much of a mission at all, you know, and they, they're just kind of floating around. And this is, this is um, 
this is kind of the, the world of missions today and where you actually find people where they basically, well, you know, all missionaries just a synonym for Christian, which it's not. Because if missions is everything, then missions is nothing. So there, there should be a mission. There should be somebody sending you. And, and that's, that's what makes up a missionary. Same thing, the apostles were sent by Jesus. And, and Paul makes it clear. He makes it clear that he was sent by the will of God. He calls upon the name of Yahweh. He calls upon the name of God, God the Father, as sending him. Even though it was Christ who had appeared to him. Um, and uh, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, or of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. And notice that to even emphasize it more, he mentions Timothy, but separately. Timothy doesn't also call an apostle. Timothy, he calls a, uh, a brother. Timothy, our brother. Which is interesting, especially if you think about this is Paul's fifth letter. He wrote, first of all, he wrote Galatians on his second missionary journey, and then he wrote, um, uh, what did he write next? Oh, First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians. And then uh, he wrote First Corinthians and Second Corinthians and Romans. And so uh, his fifth letter, but if you look back at some of his previous letters, there's some where he emphasizes his apostleship more than others. The Thessalonians, it wasn't an issue. And so he doesn't emphasize it there. In fact, what's interesting is if you read either the first verse of 1 Thessalonians or 2 Thessalonians, they're very similar. 1 Thessalonians 1 says this, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. So it has those three elements and yet he puts himself with Timothy and Silvanus, all on the same line. Whereas in this one, it's just slightly different. He really distinguishes himself as an apostle by the will of God, apostle of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother. Timothy's also part of this greeting, but he is, he's definitely put him in a different category. Um, all that's to say that I think something unique about this is that Paul affirmed his apostleship. But a third observation we'll make as we look at this, just these first two verses, is that his greeting is filled with Christian language. This whole greeting is so different. It would have been way different than a greeting from a letter from a, a Gentile to a Gentile or a pagan to a pagan, it, it, because it's, it's filled with all kinds of Christian terms. It also would have been shocking for a Jew to read this, because it's different than the typical Jewish letter to a Jew. And so um, if we just are look at this again, um, you look at some of the words in verses 1 and 2. Apostle, which is a word that really wasn't used much in ancient literature until Paul came around. And I think 39 times we find it in Scripture, and 37 of them are uh, from Paul. I, I may be wrong on that, but I, I, I think I read that somewhere. Um, and then um, uh, church, of course, is gathering or assembly. Uh, which could be used generically, but it's different. He was talking about the people gathering to worship Christ in Corinth. The saints, which is an astonishing thing anyways, that anyone could be called saints. I remember um, uh, <laughs> our church in Johannesburg when I was pastoring there, we had a small ministry to um, a, a village setting that we were working on, and it was a food ministry. And for whatever reason, there was a local media station that got wind of it. They wanted to do a little story on their church. 
and they sent somebody, it was a Christian show, it was a little Christian TV show on some kind of, I don't know, network that was not one of the major networks. But they, they came to our church, they wanted a little story, and they sent a lady who was a Roman Catholic, and she was going to sit through one of our services, and she said, uh, what are you preaching on today? And I was preaching through Ephesians, and so I said, I'm preaching on the ministry of the saints. And he, she's like, like dead people? Because in her mind, saints were dead people that you prayed to, and you know, and I'm like, no, like me, and, and like that guy, and this guy, to saints. You know, and it's just kind of, what? You know, because, uh, uh, we, we, you know, that you would, call, and, and here he's calling the people in Achaia, saints. And if you remember anything from 1 Corinthians, the whole place was known for its immorality and wretchedness and prostitution and slavery and, and just all kinds of abuses. And he calls them saints because by the grace of God, Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life. Jesus did not have to die. The Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death. Wages are what you get when you deserve something. If I hire you to do some work for me and you say, where are my wages? We talked about them beforehand. The Bible says that what you deserve for sin is is death. It says in Ezekiel, the soul of him who sins must die. So eternal punishment is what we all deserve for, for our sin. And because we sin, we die. And we die because we sin. And yet Christ never sinned. Therefore, he never had to die. Yet he allowed himself willingly to be crucified unjustly as a sacrifice, a substitute, for those who would repent of their sin and trust on his righteousness so that he could pay the price for your sins because God loves you. And he wanted to, to, to bestow his mercy and grace upon sinners who are in rebellion against him. And he opens our eyes to see our sin. And the only way for us to get rid of our sin is to call out and ask for him to save us and for us to be um, cleansed and washed. And the only way our sins can be taken away is for Christ's righteousness, according to Romans chapter 4, to be taken out of his account and placed into our account. But first, our sin must be taken out of our account and placed into his account. So that according to Romans 8, 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because when God looks at you, he sees Christ's righteousness. He sees you as perfectly just righteous and holy, just like his son. And so all of your sins have been forgiven. All those sins that you committed in the past, forgiven. All the sins that are going on in your life right now, which maybe you haven't repented of or maybe you uh, aren't even aware of, forgiven. All the sins which you have yet to commit, forgiven. Past, present, and future, you are a saint. From God's perspective, when he looks at you as a judge, he sees only Christ's righteousness. Now, as a parent, as a father, he does discipline those whom he loves. And so uh, you have a lot of motivation to honor him and obey him with your life, and he will sanctify you through various means. Grace is one of those means, and being overwhelmed with his goodness but when we think about this greeting, um, 
he is able to call them saints. He talks about Timothy as a brother. He talks about the church of, of God, which is at Corinth with all the saints. He says in, in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And this grace to you also, uh, it would have been unique. Um, the Jews um, would have been familiar with similar greeting. In fact, uh, one commentator, Paul Barnett, has, noticed, has noted, although the Jewish reader would have been familiar with the epistolary, epistolary greeting, mercy and peace, there may have been some surprise at the words grace and peace. There would have been astonishment and perhaps even offense that blessings would be associated with Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, and they should flow from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 2 that God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are placed side by side with a coordinating conjunction with the word and because they are one, they are equal, and that would have been a shock even at the greeting to a Jew who did not recognize Christ as the Messiah. So this is a distinctly Christian letter, just from the verbiage, the language, who it's addressed to, how they're described, and even the mention of God and Jesus Christ together. Now, some might say, oh, but look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's true, Jesus Christ is, God and Father is the subject, and uh, Lord Jesus Christ is in the genitive there, so it, it is showing that it's of our Lord Jesus Christ. But that doesn't, dis, that doesn't contradict verse 2, because in reality, Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is a member of the Trinity. He is co-eternal, co-equal with God, uh, along with the Holy Spirit, so the three in one. We have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And yet, uh, there is a sense in which our Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, came down to this earth and took a position um, in, in subordination to the Father. And in um, John 14, 28, he says, the Father is greater than I. He didn't mean that in essence, but he was telling them about, why are you sad when I say I'm going to depart? I'm going to the Father, and the Father is greater than I. Philippians 2, 6, and 7 also talks about him emptying himself, voluntarily giving up the independent, um, some of the independent use of some of his divine attributes. Jesus made such a sacrifice to come down and live as a man, though he was God. He never stopped being God. He never stopped having those attributes, but he for a time, gave up the independent use of those attributes and humbled himself and became a man. Even to the point of death, he humbled himself. And so um, Paul, Paul points that out even in verse 3, just the way he, he mentions that. So all of this brings us to verses 3 through 7. Uh, I want to read that. We've got some time uh, uh, for questions. Anything I said that that you raised a question that you thought, man, I, I just yes. Yeah, the Corinthian church would have been primarily uh, 
um, it would have been primarily a Gentile, uh, you would imagine, but uh, it would have, it would have, there would have been a Jewish synagogue there. It would have started with Jews. There were Jews there. And then we know from chapters 10 and 11 that there were some Jews from Jerusalem who went there. So yeah, there would have been, they would have been there. They, I don't think they would have been offended because... Uh, so the Judaizers, which was a common heresy that Paul had to deal with in Galatians, um, uh, other, other books, but the Judaizers were claimed to be believers in Christ, but they, they, they saw Jew- Jewishness as um, really like, okay, you have to get circumcised, you have to, get, you have to follow dietary restrictions. They couldn't give up some of those things which really pointed towards the Messiah. And so they were adding works to uh, the gospel. And um, that's why in Acts chapter 15, Paul went there and they had the Jerusalem council and they discussed all that. And that had happened prior to this letter. And so the Judaizers should have known that they were heretics based on what the 12 apostles. But some of them were still traveling around and trying to discredit Paul and teach their false teaching to places where Paul had already been. So... Uh, I was just pointing out that in this that this letter, when you're looking at antiquity of letters from the first century, I mean, just from the very greeting, it's so Christian. It's so starkly different from other letters that you would find. All right, I want to I want to read again um, uh, verses three through seven, and I want you to look for words that repeat themselves. Okay, and then I'll we'll, we'll, there'll be a quiz. Ready? Here we go. Um, so 1 Corinthians, sorry, 2 Corinthians, all right, 2 Corinthians, here we are, really 4 Corinthians, but 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ abound to us, so also our comfort abounds through Christ but whether we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, or whether we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which working in your perseverance in the same sufferings, which we also suffer. And our hope is for you, to, for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. Any words stand out to you? Comfort. Yeah. Yeah, there is another word. So interesting, comfort nine times in five verses. But the word affliction or suffering, if you, if you, if you count those two words, seven times. So from the very outset, we find that there's a lot of suffering going on and there's a lot of comfort. And that raises a question, which I want to begin this morning and then probably pick up on next week when we come back, and that is, why does God allow suffering from those whom he loves, or for for those whom he loves? For those who are his chosen people, his church, those he sends out, why does he allow so much suffering? In MacArthur's commentary on this very passage, he lists eight reasons. Uh, I went through some other material, and I've, I've come up with 10 reasons, but... I think it's good for us to, because I had to get two more than MacArthur. No, because, uh, I, I, I actually, the, the truth is, I think that uh, 
I, I found another list from MacArthur and some of the, you know, he had pens. So I put them all together. Anyway, so, um, but uh, what, I'm, what I'm wondering is, how would you answer that question? Why do you, bad things happen to good people? Okay? What are your answers? How do you respond to that? Okay, character. Okay? So character is one of them. And if we, if we, um, if we think about this, um, so trials strengthen our spiritual character. All right? That's one of them. Um, we have Romans 5, 3 says, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. I love Romans 5. We, we glory in tribulations. Hey, why are you so happy today? Tribulation. I'm just glorying in it. Fantastic. Tribulation? Yeah, not the great tribulation, but really bad ones anyway. So it's just like terrible suffering. I glory in it. Wait a minute. Are you sure? Like, are you sure you know what that word means? Um, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. And so you say, yeah, I am grateful. And I, I, think, I think a true test of spiritual maturity is that you are able to get to the point I don't think it has to happen immediately, but I think with any trial that comes into your life, you should be able to get to the point where you are thankful for it. And you're thankful for it, recognizing that this is going to build your character. This is going to strengthen your character. James chapter 1 teaches the same thing, right? Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. And, and again, this language is so foreign to the world. It's like, yes, how exciting. What are you excited about? I don't know how God's going to get me through this, but I know he's going to get me through this. I'm excited because I've got a trial, and a new trial in my life. And, and I, I'm, I'm saying this kind of tongue-in-cheek, but you know how hard it is to say it genuinely and really mean it? not just quoting a verse you memorized, but really meaning it, like, I genuinely think my life is better because of this trial. Um, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance, and let perseverance have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God uses trials to help strengthen your character. But why else? Is that it? Why else did he allow trials to come? By the way, I asked kind of a, a, a loaded question. I said, why do, good, why do bad things happen to good people? The answer is, there are no good people. Right? Romans 3 says, says uh, for all of sin, and there's, there's no one who good, not even one. So we all deserve condemnation. The fact that we're alive today and breathing is grace. We have another day, a gift of God. We don't deserve anything. So there are no good people. God allows things that we look as suffering and trials, but he does it for good and righteous reasons. Give me another one of those reasons. Yes. 
so that we can relate to others and comfort. That's really what this passage is about. And we'll talk more about that. But, um, it, you know, trials enable us to comfort others in their trials. Remember in Luke 22, when uh, Jesus spoke to Simon Peter and he said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat. But I have prayed earnestly for you that your faith may not fail. And you once have returned strengthen your brothers. So um, uh, he says, hey, Simon, I got some news for you. You know how they take wheat and they thrash it and then they sift it and they get rid of the chaff. So they beat the kernel and then they get rid of the outer shell. It just blows away. You're going to be, Satan wants to beat you like that. And he wants to get away of any kind of outer fluff in your life. You know, that's what he, he really wants to put you through the ringer that, you know, and, but I have earnestly prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, once you have returned, strengthen your brothers. Hey, Simon, you're going to go through a really tough time. Just, just FYI, I know the future. And this is going to be brutal. And I'm praying that your faith will not fail but that this will strengthen you so that you can strengthen your brothers. Um, so trials enable us to comfort others. And uh, we see that in verses three and four, especially. Um, verse four, who comforts us in our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any aff- affliction. If this was the only reason you knew about why God allows trials, you wouldn't have much of an answer, would you? Why does God allow trials? To comfort those who have trials. (laughs) Why? So they can comfort those who have trials. Well, why don't we just not have any trials? Right? But there are more reasons. What are they? Yes, Michael. To prove our faith to to you. Yeah, to prove our faith to us. Um, Trials. Test the validity of our faith. They test our faith. You go through a trial, like, you know, um, you know, I was talking about this with someone else just yesterday, and that is, you know, sometimes your kids, they profess Christ at an early age, which is great, but it's really hard to see whether that faith is genuine or not when they're young, because they also desire to please their parents. So did you confess Christ, and are you living obediently just because I'm here as a restraining authority and you're trying to please me? Or have you actually repented and trusting in God as your Savior? And sometimes your kids will come and say, I'm not sure I'm saved. I've asked 47 times, and I, I'm not sure. And, and what we've told our kids over the years, we're not sure either. It's hard to distinguish whether the fruit that you're bearing is just to make us happy, which will not save you, or whether it's genuinely because you've repented, understood your sins, and given your life to Christ. And so we, will, we just want to be patient with you and we're praying and, and we rejoice that you have confessed that and we're hoping that it's genuine. But in time, it will especially once the less and less that we have this influence over your life, it will help you to see that more. And maybe they go to a public school and they see like where the world is and they become bolder in their faith because of the affliction that they experience from other kids or maybe it's when they're in college or maybe it's somebody else who 
is, you know, even in the church who, who does something, meaning how are they responding? Who are they relying upon? And once they see, like, who they really trust, it will give them more assurance in their faith, and it, it, it tests the validity of their faith. Proverbs 17.3, the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but Yahweh tests hearts. Old Testament tells us that, hey, just like gold is refined, God tests your heart to help refine you. Um, Job 13.15, you remember Job's story, Satan again, for reasons unknown to Job, thinks that Job will falter and so wants to bring all kinds of like almost unimaginable trials upon Job's life, and God permits it, and Job's friends falter, and Job's wife tells him to curse God and die, and yet it says in Job 13, verse 15, though he slay me, I will hope in him. What does that tell you about Job's faith? It was genuine. Though he slay me, though he cuts me up and takes everything that that I loved, I will hope in him because my hope in him is greater than everything else and he's God and he's holy and he's right and he's just and who am I to question God? So we have trials test the validity of our faith. Let's do one more and then we'll pick this up. Yeah. Yeah, trials remind us on our dependence upon God. They, they keep us humble, and they remind us to be dependent upon Him and not to be, try to be self-sufficient. There's something about our culture and our society that we want to prove to others how great we are. You know, somebody told me the other day they were in Montana, and they made the mistake of asking a cattle farmer how many head of cattle he has, uh, and how many acres he had. And the, po- the, the, the farmer said to him, where are you from? He said, Chicago. And he said, you know, here in Montana, when you ask somebody that, it's like going to a businessman in Chicago and saying, how much money do you have in the bank? We don't, we don't talk about that. And then he told him how much land he had. But anyways, um, <laughs> so... See that mountain way over there? See that mountain way over there? Everything in between. So, uh, but um, <laughs> anyway, w- there's something about us as humans where we want to show people how great we are and where we want people to say, wow, you're amazing. And there's something frightening to us and counter uh, our nature to say, I don't want you to look at me at all. I don't want you to think of me at all. I want you to see Christ. And I want you to forget me. In fact, if you forget my name and forget anything, because I do nothing without him, his name is the only name that matters. That is so foreign to our society that we sometimes slip into wanting to do what society does, which is make a name for ourselves and show people how great we are and what we did and what we accomplished. And this is true for everyone, even the Apostle Paul. And we'll see that when we get to chapter 12, of 2 Corinthians, because 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself 
there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. The word messenger in the New Testament is angelos, means angel. Every time it's used, it's used describing a person. God allowed a messenger of Satan to the Apostle Paul to torment him. Why? We know why. To keep him from exalting himself. And so we pray, Lord, if that's what it takes, torment me. I don't want to stand in the vision, in the way of somebody who's trying to look to you. Keep me humble. Keep me from exalting myself. If suffering and trials are necessary, then, then bring it. But if just reading your word, help me respond to that. Help me walk out of here humble. I want to feel small, so small that nobody thinks about me. But when they see me or hear me, they think about you. Those are four benefits to trials. There are six more that we'll look at next week as we open. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time in your word. Thank you for the challenge of your word. Thank you for the comfort that only you can bring. And we haven't even really talked about that comfort. We're just looking at suffering. Thank you, Father, for your grace in our lives. We give you all the, the glory and all the power be to your name. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.